Hey Jess, how are you? Hey, good. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good day. You, so I don't need to ask you that question. Um, or this is just, I suppose, mainly somewhat under the context of Jess asking questions, but I suppose more as a conversation. What do you do on car trips? You just asked me, and I think this is something I didn't understand. So I was going to say this: like most, like work time, I'm trying to run the show. So I am trying not to end the day with no energy in the tank unless I have to. Like it's a, there's an emergency that's caused it. But normally outside of work, it's meant to be kind of the tank being filled up. So they say relaxing done well is recharging. And so it's Sunday now. And if I was driving back, whilst there might be something very interesting that I, I want to learn about, I'll only listen to it like as a podcast or an audiobook or whatever, if it's given me energy. And so I basically am trying to have whatever is giving me energy run the show. And so that's kind of like an outside of work or like a Sunday you know, way of being. Uh, whereas during work time, whilst I think you should listen to your body, I don't think that, that you should be necessarily having that be the kind of key thing you're optimizing for because you mightn't get very much done. <laughs> whereas, so, so, so basically today is hoping to end the weekend with the tank full, not the tank empty. Um, whereas during work, I'm trying to get as much done as possible without rinsing myself, without the tank being empty. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, that makes sense. And then like when you're looking for things to give you energy on the weekend, what is on your menu of possible choices? <laughs> well, this is, this is like, I think there should be lots of things. Um, I have two little nieces and I was talking to my sister and brother-in-law about this. I think you want to have effectively a menu list of things which they can't run out of. So this is just an arbitrary number. So let's just say 20 things, right? But I think 10 is probably far more like, you know, reasonable. Um, I'm just going to put this on, do not disturb. Um, is then um, when they get bored, because, you know, kids get bored of something eventually. They start off and then there's a time they get bored and they want to switch activities, right? Um, and you want some of these activities to have some nutrition. So, for instance, some literacy, some numeracy, some hand-eye coordination, some whatever else it is, right? And... If you try to get them to do something when they're not wanting to change activities, then they don't normally want to do it. But you're like, oh, hey, what about this? And they say, cool, let's read a book. And some books just, uh, you know, there's not much in there. Others, you're learning the alphabet or something, right? Um, or some things like a, a TV show like Number Blocks I quite like. Um, kids will learn quite a lot about numeracy. And so effectively, when they, then they, they'll do that till they get bored, then they want to change. And so one of the ways to hopefully have them consume some nutritious things is to have a menu list of things. And then when they want to shift, you suggest. And they're very open to what to do when they've, run, when they've got bored of the current activity to, to do this. Um, and so perhaps in the same vein, on the weekend, I think, for instance, so Saturday is Duncan Day, uh, and I tried very hard not to work. I did work half this morning, for like four hours this morning. Um, and you want to have a list of things to do to relax, like menu items, right? And so if one of them is just not working, then you just switch to the next one, if that makes sense. So you don't kind of like run out of things to do. Um, and so I can go through, like, you know, just going for a walk as an example, depending on go and get a massage, um, go and, I don't know, eat food, um, listen to music. Um, sometimes like some of my friends play Xbox. I'm like, okay, well, I don't always want to play Xbox, but there's these things, you know? So you, there's like a list of things. Um, I've got an electric skateboard, like literally just for this. It's effectively like a long, snowboard run or surfing run that never ends like because you need um and you don't have to drive all the way to the snow or all the way to the beach or something you can just literally go out your front door um and so i think this is one of these weird hacks i didn't know when i was like whatever 10 years ago that you should have a menu item list of things for relaxing and it's longer than you can do like so you can never run out so it's the same strategy i have for my sister and the, their nieces 
have a menu list of things to do for the kids that they never get bored. So that's, that during the day, there's always something. They're not there's like, you know, I don't, there's nothing they want to do. Does that make sense? And so if you've got the, the menu or like this list bigger than what you can order from, you never run out. And then your, your chance of, for instance, having a child that isn't having a tantrum or, for instance, you not being able to relax is, is a lot better. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what about things that are not allowed on the menu? Like, I know you don't use social media much. Do you have anything yeah. like prohibited? Um, well, it, it depends because you kind of need to fight yourself a little bit. Um, they say the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. Um, and so I didn't know much about anything when I was 20, but I like to think I learn more about everything slowly. And so there's so much interesting stuff. And this is so much interesting stuff now. And one of the things to fight against like on a Saturday is getting stuck into something interesting because then you, you end up spending six hours in it. And it's very interesting, but by the end of the day, your mind hasn't relaxed. And so in some respects, it's work by a different name. Um, so I don't know, I'm super interested in effectively of this week, like, you know, what is ChatGPT and Sydney, the new sort of thing from Bing and what actually is the point of, you know, consciousness or if you want to call it that or being, being, you know, and I honestly don't know if we've crossed it. Like I think we might have. And so it's so like looking into this. And so you can look at like, so Andre Capacho, who, who was one of the people that started OpenAI, put a two, two, two hour YouTube course on about how to build it. And I, I couldn't get through it all because it was like, it was like too boring um, for me anyway. Anyways, what's not allowed on the list, this is getting off track, are things that aren't relaxing. Yeah. So that's, that's the only meta rule. Um, and things can be relaxing for different reasons. Yeah. That's tricky though. Cause like, for example, if I let myself do whatever I want, I tend to, I'll think a lot about different people and try and map together, for example, like their internal mental model. And I often question like, is that a relaxing activity or is that something that I'm doing out of a place of like anxiety or is that not relaxing? So what do you, how do you, how do you handle freedom in terms of those things? When you think that maybe your mind's threading things together too hectically, should it be allowed to continue or do you have to pull it back and say like, ah, uh -uh, meditate? Yeah, so meditation is definitely one of the activities for relaxing, but I don't want to meditate, for instance, for all Saturday. <laughs> but what will I hopefully do a couple of, you know, 15, 20-minute sessions in a day? Like, yeah, sure. Um, well, to me, it depends because whatever the activity for you might be relaxing, but the same activity for me might be stressful yeah. and the way you're sort of going about it. Um, and often, like, insidious things are like an upgrade and a downgrade at the same time, or it's interesting and relaxing at the same time. So you might then choose to call it relaxing or something, but it actually isn't. Um, and so I think they say time is the only non-renewable resource, therefore the most important resource. And I think that's not necessarily true. Energy is the most important because if you don't manage your energy, then how you spend your time is not good. Um, and so energy management, I think is more important than time management. Um, and there are specific things like Saturday is literally just recharge day. Um, and if I don't recharge, if I just work straight on through, then I would argue that whilst I might have worked more hours that week, the output actual amount is lower and the quality is lower and my enjoyment is lower and my enjoyability to be around is lower. So it took me a long, 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 long time to realize that doing less hours work could mean getting more done. Like it was so hard to break that direct link. So anyways, the main thing is just different types of time. So you should have like, I don't know, serious mode and silly mode. You should have relaxed mode and rad mode. Like I contain multitudes. And so if you only have one mode, I don't know if that's great. And I suppose I've been attempting to try to figure out having many modes and to figure out what is the optimal mode for this time. And then to be able to be good at going from serious mode to silly mode or, or whatever else it is. Um, and it's, it's, I think, quite difficult. Yeah. It is difficult. Like how do you make yourself have fun when you don't feel like it or when you've got something weighing heavily on your 
mind? Like, what do you do about that? Well, I think this part of like um, meditation to me in some respects, there's many lenses on it, is like a technology to hopefully level up your mind. Um, so one thing, if you focus on your breath, which is one of the sort of most common meditations, um, hopefully if you're able to do that, then you're able to let go of whatever you were thinking and whatever you were feeling. And if you're able to let go of those things, then what you're left with is calm. Once you've let go of everything, you're left with calm. And so one description of meditation, and there are many, I think, is practicing your calm muscles or your calm ability so that if, if the seas get rough, you can then bring out your calm ability because you've been practicing it and you can kind of not get stuck in the moment. Um, so the ability to let go of things um, to, you know, is, I think, something that is crucial to hopefully being able to have different modes. And I think if you don't have different modes, then you're kind of in the wrong one mode all the time. I don't think is great. And there's definitely a better optimal mode for this time or that. And so, yeah, there can be things that are really important that you really care about. But caring about them all day, every day, is probably not great. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you, you, I think ideally can let go of things. You will fix that. You will, you will get onto it. It's just, it's Monday's problem. It's Monday Duncan's problem. It's not you know, Friday, 7 p.m. Duncan's problem. Um, and being able to try to do that, I think, enables you to, to hopefully put much better energy, effort, you know, quality into things. That makes sense. And I don't know if I'm playing in semantics here, but what about if you're dealing with like a people problem? Because I know you've got a lot of frameworks for dealing with mm. business problems. At what point do you say that this is complete or I'm going to put this problem down? What's your process for that? Uh, it depends. Like, I don't know, like literally like I try, you know, after sort of 6 p.m. on a Friday, there are no work problems. Like this is like literally like if it's really bad, like I just really try to live it till Sunday, ideally Monday. Um, and so, you know, some things are life or death, but most things aren't. Like, I'm not a doctor. No one's going to bleed out on the operating table, right? So this is something that we need to address and see. So I think it is legitimate that you don't have to deal with it, you know, all weekend as an example. Um, Just say you've got like, you know how in your Cloud Streets blog, you've got lots of different models for dealing with like business problems. Yeah. How would you synthesize that if someone was say, trying to deal with an emotional problem or a relationship problem? Like I, I keep looking at your models with the different variables. Like how would you quadrant it out if you were trying to handle say, a, you know, a disruption in your friendship with James? Like what process hmm. would you go through to feel like you've sealed sealed the, the thinking process to a point of complete? Huh. You could put it down. There's actually in there, I think uh, some of it is like, to me, Cloud Streets is, is sort of like, things to help Ed Rollo as a business, as opposed to Ed Rollo the product. I know that's an oversimplification as like the product part and the business part. And definitely the business part involves people management, you know, interactions, communication, a lot of things. Um, but I don't know, let's say James, like there was a time, um, you know, James and I were extraordinarily good friends growing up. Um, and then he was living in Sydney, I was living in Melbourne, and we weren't talking that much. And when we were talking and, you know, it was like by phone and, there were somewhat, in, in my opinion, like surface level conversations, which didn't necessarily, you know, you some you, at the end of it, you're a better friend and some at the end of it, you're not, you're a worse friend. Not like necessarily you don't like each other, but you know, the friendship's just sort of fading away. And I, I had come to believe that we were on trajectory to not be friends. Um, and I didn't want that to happen. I was like, I don't want to not be friends with you. But given that it seems reasonable that you're going to be in Sydney for the civil future and I'm going to be in Melbourne for the civil future, if we have the same interactions that we had, then I think the trajectory will continue to be the same, which is a slowly declining friendship from like great friends, best friends to kind of acquaintances to kind of, you know, strangers, right? Um, and so I put a few ideas out for him. Um, and one of them was Cloudstrix, the podcast. Really? Um, oh. yeah. 
<laughs> so relationship activities can be many things. Some of them sound like you have a beer at the pub. Some of them, you know, people play sport. Some of them, you know, you know, whatever else it is, go do therapy if you're a couple or something, right? And we would have a hopefully a quite you know involved discussion, and we'd both think about what we want to talk about, and we'd both do a bit of prep beforehand, and then we also do post game analysis uh, after, so we listen to ourselves, and then we try to give each other feedback. Feedback are, are gifts, or opportunities to grow, and we so I basically I put forward new relationship activities, which I felt would you know arrest the decline, which I thought was heading towards perhaps even being you know strangers, and. Then he's like, yeah, I'm down to try. I'm like, hell yeah. Like, I'm almost always willing to try. Someone else is willing to try. But if someone isn't willing to try, then if you try, is it for naught or whatever? And so our, the shape of our relationship has changed massively um, from when we were living 500 meters from each other and we could hang out all the time. We're at university as an example. We didn't have too much, you know, work going on. Um, so, so, that, so that one in specifically, like, once I'd found some activities, and there's another couple um, which I won't mention here, but one of them being the podcast, I felt that we were no longer on this declining trajectory. And I didn't want to be on that declining trajectory. And actually, I'd, I'd say that we're closer now than we were 10 years ago. It's different. Um, and so when do I stop thinking about it? Well, when it's above sufficiency, uh, which is like, you know, some things you want to have to be the best in the world, other things just need to be good enough. Um, and so to me, I didn't want to not be friends with him. And I felt that we had new ways of catching up, even though 99% of our catch-ups are not in person that meant we would likely be great friends in, in when we were 100. And so once I felt that, I didn't need to worry about it anymore. Mm, that makes sense. So you always choose action. There's always, every time you seem to meet a problem, you choose like a plan of action, you implement it, and then you reflect on what happens and then try again. Some, yeah, so uh, <laughs> it might, like, I hope it's not a strategy. Having said which, I do think that there should be serendipity. Um, so. Planned unplannedness. Um, some of my friends laugh at this. I'm like, no, no. There's planned time, and there's time where I plan to not be planned. And like, you can't plan to not be planned. I'm like, you have neither. You're kind of half planned and half not planned. I'd much rather have like this is really quite you know systematic here. And also, like say Saturday, there are things I can do, but there's nothing I have to do. Um, and so I do think you should have different modes. Um, one should contain multitudes. Uh, I wrote a sort of blog about that. And I think at work. So sometimes you need to be in lead mode sometimes you need to be in empathy mode sometimes you need to be in understanding mode sometimes you know there's different things right um and so even at work um there's this but also there are times where i'm not trying to be in a mode if that makes sense like it's like you're not consciously trying to think about the best way to be in this circumstance but at work i like to try and definitely not for all times to be what i think is optimal um and i definitely don't achieve that but that's the goal yeah <laughs> actually can you break up your work day for me like what does a day for you look like it changes massively um which is good and bad um so i, I don't know like i get I, like um at the moment um it's trying to understand what is happening in the australian business to get above efficiency and to build what i believe is the best strategy for this year um to improve education and that involves speaking to the different people at the role at the moment, as well as going through some of the surveys and things that have been reading and then synthesizing. Um, and then trying to understand how we can work together um, and, you know, stress test the crap out of whatever hypotheses I've got, as well as get people on board to want to help. So this doesn't necessarily, like, I don't know, that doesn't help. Um, there's normally two to four hours of meetings a day. Um, yeah.
No, it doesn't um, help. Like, how much do you like if you're trying to synthesize something together? How much kind of like leeway would you give yourself to say start picking up different bits of research or exploring different books or topics? Like, will you let yourself <laughs> off the track and refer back to Joe Bowler's work or something like that? Or are you uh, like that's for the weekend? <laughs> yeah. Also, um, problem solving is a combination of reading, thinking, talking, writing, building, user testing, um, and cycle. Um, and so there is times like in the morning, I'm up at six, you know, gym. Uh, and then normally started working 7.30 to 8. Um, and then after the gym, there's reading and eating breakfast. Um, and in the, that period, sort of hour and a half to two hours between 6 and 8, 7.30 and 8, it's reading things uh, or you know, listening to things mainly, but also reading in front of the computer for half an hour. Um, and those things, you don't have a direct connection to how they're going to help. But I found that so much of it does help in the future. Definitely some of it doesn't. But these things that you've read. Um, but then when you're doing a project, I'm sure there are some projects without deadlines. I have never worked on one of those. Um, and maybe I would like to. Maybe I wouldn't because then, then you just end up being frivolous and I always feel like I've been frivolous anyway. But you've got a deadline, right? You know, it needs to be done by this date. And then you kind of try to back it out. And then you then systematically put in things. So like at a minimum, if there's my number one you know, problem or thing to solve, I will have at least one meeting about it every day. And you are talking through things and systemizing. So you've got four weeks. And so you just you don't want to just like unveil something at the end because you know, who knows if it's right. You want to have as many iterations out of it as possible. Um, and by talking to people, um, this is what they often call this. Or they often refer to as the self-explanation effect in education. When you try to explain something to somebody else, you understand it better yourself. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that helps. You're just constantly going at different angles and different things and trying to gather as much information. And it's like explore, synthesize, explore, synthesize, explore, synthesize. And I would argue that you should at the longest have an explore synthesize loop of nine hours of exploration and then one hour of synthesis sort of 10 to one is often the things um but normally i do shorter than that so it's like three hours two to three hours of thing and two to three hours of synthesis, two to three hours of exploration two to three hours of synthesis, you roll through two cycles a day um and then talking to people it's like you know it's not just like then you think you know and then what do you think and then they, and then they're like stress testing like oh my god there's all these holes i didn't see that you know what does that mean you know cycle 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 yeah that's interesting. And then how do you choose the people that you synthesize with or like stress test with? Who? How do you pick those people? They're your business partners, right? Yeah, so there's people that normally at work, but other times you're speaking, you need to speak to teachers, you need to speak to students or whatever else it is. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm not in the position that I get to speak to whoever I want whenever I want. Um, but, you know, at work, you can normally try to make get time in people's calendars, etc. So you just try to think about who's going to be able to help the most that I'm going to be able to get, you know, time to speak to, you know, in this thing. And then you obviously don't want to only speak to one person because they're probably going to, you know, have ego distortions and blind spots like you do. And so all else equal, you've got to try to speak to the right diversity of people in the right frequency. But I would heavily lean against like anything like, even I, I do not spend a day by myself on a problem at work because you just get lost. Mm. So yeah, like a meeting, like, like the, the longest would be like a meeting at like midday. So I've had the whole morning to think before then and the meeting at the end of the day, that'd be the absolute minimum. And if I did less than that one meeting a day, I, I believe I'd make significantly less progress. Yeah, that, that's really interesting and it makes sense. What advice would you give to people who don't have that many people that they can talk to? Like, how could you construct a way for other people to help people, you know, synthesize problems together? Would it be that you just pick your friends and then you, you can make a commitment to synthesizing once a day? Or how could that look for people that don't have a team? Well, it depends on um, what you're doing, but normally you're building a product for others, not just for yourself. Um, and so you should be speaking to others about whether your product is working. So I would say 
that in any business, there's a product, sometimes the product is a service. It's not, it's like a good, you know, it's a service or whatever. Um, so teaching, I think is that, you know, it's not like you look at the teacher and you understand what's happening. You just see them teaching the service being administered or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so to me, there needs to be, I think at least one person who is, their job is product. Like that's like the head of product or whatever. And I don't know why there isn't necessarily this name more. And it's not like what I think most people would call head of product, which is, you know, at, at like, I don't know, Instagram or something. Uh, and and a core, core, core component of that is speaking to customers, watching customers using the product, you know, user testing. Um, and so even if you were a one, you know, person shop, you, you're providing service. It's not just providing the service, it's then, you know, the metacognition or reflection on what the service is provided and speaking to them about what's working, what's not working, so you can get better. Does that make sense? So you would never not not be able to speak to people, I'd hope. Um, yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. So the buckets of people that you speak to is you've got the customer, you've got the people that are your partners. Who are the other kind of yeah buckets of people that you speak to in the process? Well, if we're talking about Ed Rolu, um, you need to do in-class observations, I think. So you need to watch the product being used in classes. Yeah. Um, you also need to see them using not your product, other products, because oh. there's an insight. Then you want to speak to the teachers after because what they say and what you're able to see are often significantly different. Like you can't see inside someone's mind. Um, and then you also want to do student user testing. So that'd be the sort of major categories. Um, and then you're effectively building a model of the world. Um, you know, all models are wrong, some models are useful. And the model is an abbreviation. And one way to think about models is like, well, there's, you need to take the different user types for teachers. So we'll talk about, say, out of area. So they're like someone, like a PE teacher doing year seven humanities, traditional, and innovator. Uh, so to me, normally two to five personas will cover 80 plus percent of the thing. Now there's almost infinite, but you don't want to assume everyone's the one, the same, and you can't know every single person is 100% unique. That's just too much. And so you, you're building a model that means that you can put this model on, like this hat on and pretend or glasses to see the world as an out of area teacher for humanities or to see it as a traditional teacher for humanities and then how do I look at this, right? So then you put the product and you go, what, how does this persona look at it different to this persona, look at it different to this persona? And then you go and you make something that you hope is an improvement. Then you say, oh, this is how I think these three people would look at it. And then you get it in front of those three people. And then you measure whether your model reflects reality. Um, and so in that way, you can empathize broadly with the people you're trying to help. Um, so the better your ability to empathize, the better your ability to help. Um, and so you need to be building models to be able to abbreviate the major personas that mean that you can see the world the way that they see it. So this is like the problem side and then you need to build the solution sets. Um, it's getting too much of like people, I think they're you know, are not very good at telling you what they need, but they're very good at giving you feedback on something you've built. So then you build it and you show them that you like it or not. And if they, they normally are pretty good at saying whether they like it or don't, they're not necessarily why, but they're not necessarily then what do you want fixed? And they can't tell you often, so you need to figure it out. So anyways, yeah, does that help? That's slightly yeah, awesome. no, that definitely helps. That's actually really interesting. And then what do you do, like, in the space of empathy, when you're first meeting someone, how do you kind of scaffold for the fact that people, you know, maybe people are feeling nervous or shy so they don't tell you what's actually on their mind? Like, how do you scaffold and actually try and get them to a place of comfort where you can hear what's true to them or where you can make them feel comfortable enough to be, you know, honest? Or how do you deal with that? How do you navigate that? Uh, if we're talking about teachers... Um, I guess, so yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It depends if there's people like at work or something. Um, teachers, because I bet that they'd probably be intimidated by the Ed Roller interview. <laughs> well, I mean, so you're going to um, the school. So um, this is the thing, like, I think, let's just say if you're if you're a parent, 
and their kids in the class, then they might be quite worried, like, are you doing a good job for my child or whatever? Or, or if you're another teacher, they might feel like you're judging their teaching. We are resource provider. So you can choose to hire us to be the you know resource provider, you know, we're, we're printed digital, or you can hire somebody else. So we're not here because my kid's in the class or because I'm the head of department or something. And so we're here just to help to understand whether the resource is working or not. And so I don't think we're threatening. Um, and it doesn't mean that you notice different teachers use it in different ways and some teachers care more than others. And that's just like is life. But we're not really there to pass judgment. We're there to see whether or not this is helping them get better outcomes than they would if they had another resource and for them and their students, um, as opposed to try to build a professional development program to make them better teachers or help better provide better resources that make them or help them be better teachers. Does that make sense? So I like to think that we're non-threatening. Um, and I think that's we sort of are because we are allowed into classrooms and it's very, they're very generous. Um, and we are there trying to see, well, do they understand the, re the resource or does it not you know, make it sense? And so if something needs explanation, normally it's too difficult. Like if you need a training course, then you don't get past go many times. <laughs> so figure out a resource that doesn't require a training, so, you, know, um, you know, training session. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, what about in general then? Like, how do you build? How do you build a sense of trust between people? I think trust is, um, you know, built over time. Trust is consistency times time. They say, but I think also to have a friend first, you must be a friend. Um, so, if you're willing to go first and go positive, to, to be vulnerable um, and to show things, then it creates a space for others to be vulnerable as well. Um, you know, hopefully you're, never, you're not in a life or death situation at work, um, and as such being vulnerable and open and, you know, not pretending like you you think you've have it all figured out, but trying to understand, like, so this is the thing that we are trying to find most of the time our ego distortions and blind spots. Yeah. When you find one, that should, you know, you have to retrain your mind to be that being good um, because you're less wrong. Like, um, not because somehow you you were right and now you're wrong. It's like, no, you found something you didn't know and that doesn't make you, you know, stupid. It, it means that you're human and the goal is to find those things as fast as possible. Um, so yeah, to me, it, we're just going and improving education. Everyone's on the same team. Let's, let's try to make as much progress as possible. Let's try to find out where we're off and not then go into defense mode, but then to try to be like, oh my God, yes. What does this mean? How do we incorporate that? Um, it's not a direct answer, I think, but we're just no, trying to make no. progress. Yeah. Mm. No, that makes sense. I mean, this is, this is a little bit off topic, but mm. in terms of like editing and ego distortion, I was writing in my journal before. And I was trying to write the line that um, despite seeing like the fallacy in her mind, da 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 da, mm. and then I stopped the word fallacy based on what you've been talking about in terms of positive mindset because I was like, do I want to commit that word to the page? Mm. But I was kind of stuck with the question of like, if I edit that, is that editing a part of myself? Am I then leaning into a blind spot because I'm denying what was there? Or I'm denying an aspect of myself. Like, yeah, when I teach journaling, I tell people that they should purge the poison and get all of the negative narratives onto the page as like a first piece. The second piece is being active and like questioning the narratives and going in with like a CBT lens. The third is like lessons, da, da, da. but yeah. yeah, like putting that to you, like how much of ourselves should we edit in terms of like positive mindset and the way that we speak to ourselves? This is an interesting question. Um, the first thing that's coming to mind is not actually mindsets, but also but emotions. And I think that I'm going to separate them. Um, so I think I've written about this. I think. Um, being emotionally healthy is not only feeling good emotions and not feeling bad emotions, it's feeling all emotions in a healthy way. So feeling sorrow, you know, regret, those things, those things are totally fine to me. In fact, they're healthy. Not, not trying to block them out or whatever, you know, is, is not necessarily great. And so there are times um, of the week, like generally not at work, 
where I'm like, let's just see where the emotions go. And feeling strong emotions can be absolutely one of the most beautiful things. And some of them are, you know, not good emotions. So sorrow, you know, regret, shame, whatever, um, embarrassment, and actually like sitting in it and just trying to see like what happens. Um, and so to me, from that side, because I think mindsets can sometimes be sort of mixed with emotions or whatever, but there are definitely times of the week where I'm trying to like have the emotions go where they want to go um, and not trying to control my mind or something. Um, and you're definitely happy with sort of, because like tomorrow's a new day and I've sort of always found that like, I, you know, it doesn't matter how your headspace gets or whatever. Um, eventually you can go to sleep. Sometimes it takes a long ass time, <laughs> but it, it's fine. So from that part, and I don't know this part of, of journaling, um, you know, it's being able to reflect on things. And so just being able to explore something I think can be extraordinarily valuable. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and I guess you're right. Like there's kind of a tension and a time and a place. It's sort of a shame though, because I feel like some people get stuck into the negative. So it's like mm. they give themselves permission to write down what's hard. And then mm. that just turns into, yeah, like an ongoing kind of, yeah, like negative experience. And they don't really close it up and seal it with something positive at the end. And it mm. means that journaling becomes tainted with negativity. But then mm. on the other hand, it's like, you know, when I've had downtimes, if I try and positively lens everything, that's not productive either. Because then, yeah, there's no purging of emotions. So I suppose finding that, that place of tension is kind of the trick. Well, there's a Buddhist mantra, you are not your thoughts, you are the observer of your thoughts. You are not your emotions, you are the observer of your emotions. I think there's some validity to that. Like sometimes you should be the observer of your emotions, but actually sometimes I want to be my emotions. Yeah. And this is part of also like, you know, meditation is like attention control. So for instance, can you step back and observe your emotions? Like I am not frustrated. I'm experiencing frustration. You know, I am not, you know, you know, excited. I'm experiencing excitement or whatever else it is, right? Yes. But you should also be able to have your attention where, you know, you know what? I am just straight up frustrated right now. <laughs> um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing is if you can't then step out ever to then observe it or if your emotions end up running the show. And so to me, this is the whole idea of I have different modalities. Sometimes I want to be the observer of my emotions, not emotions. Sometimes I want to be my emotions. The problem would be if I get stuck in one mode indefinitely, right? Um, and or I've been told that you know, you should just accept everything. More what is you know? And like, no, some things are great and you're allowed to be happy about them. Some things just accept it, it doesn't matter. And other things are bad and you should be annoyed about it. You know, the wise man, whatever it is, the, the reasonable man adapts to the world. The unreasonable man adapts the world to him. Therefore, all progress, it depends on the unreasonable man, George Bernard Shaw. Um, and so to me, there are definitely things that I think are not good enough in the world and that I'm straight up doing my level best not to accept, right? And, but that doesn't mean I have to do that all day, every day work hours, you know? <laughs> um, so to me, yeah, your, your mind, like there's, we'll call this another way, there's a conscious component and a subconscious component. Um, and you, you should be living in the conscious component sometimes, you should be living in the subconscious component sometimes. And you can like, and ultimately, you know, you can learn from both. Um, so to me, the only way to fail is to fail to learn. And negativity isn't necessarily bad, it's bad, if you can't learn from it, or if you somehow get stuck in it forever. But to trying to never visit it, or to say that negativity is bad in of itself, I think is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How many emotional shades do you think you cycle through in a day? 
depends on the day. <laughs> um, some days, not very many. Other days, like a lot. Um, but I think also, um, I don't know if you've seen those emotional wheels and they've got like, you know, bigger like this. I don't necessarily know that I think they're the best way because often those ones, they've got like three quarters of them or something and negative ones and one quarter are positive. Um, they say um, that most people feel more than one emotion at a single time. So you can feel happiness and regret at the same time, right? And that's not bad. It's 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 called life. But also more than that, like sometimes I want like a really like you can look at like, I don't know, my two-year-old niece and like the, I, I, there's like just one emotion and it's like like 100% going, right? Um, and I'm like, I don't know if I felt an emotion that pure except when I look at you and I somehow for that instant like see the emotion you're feeling and I sort of feel it. But then, and then you you go going with it for the next minute or two, and I'm like instantly out of it again or whatever. Um, and so, I think hopefully over time you become slightly more sophisticated, or you you know you level up, and instead of being able to only see you know, the three primary colors, you can mix them together into all the colors of the rainbow. And not just that, you can see more than one color at a time. And I feel that that is my emotional experience of the world. But sometimes. You kind of want to just be able to go and see, well, we're just seeing blue. Like, you know, that's it. Not this shade of blue plus 20 other colors at the same time, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, it, it can be fun. Like, you know, to me, again, like sometimes you look at the world's sort of emotions in, sometimes you look at, you know, things, thoughts in, sometimes it's behaviors in or whatever. It's a kind of behavioral therapy. Um, and you should be able to live in different lenses. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. What what do you think at the moment? Like, why do you think people are getting trapped in, well, maybe shades of blue? Like, what do you think is happening, or how can we do that? Um, this is a, a bigger question. Um, and so, to me, uh, whether you're aware of it or not, um, and I don't know if you listened to the last time I, I chatted with James. I think almost every single thing comes with a mindset attached to it. So every mm -hmm. story has a mindset, whether you're necessarily aware of it or not. And there are many mindsets out there, but some of the sort of, I think, more prevalent ones is like learned helplessness versus learned helplessness or fixed mindset versus growth mindset, which is another version of identity politics. Like you're born, your sex, skin color, you know, income bracket, and doesn't matter. You know, that defines who you are for the rest of your life versus that's your starting point. And you get to build yourself. And of course it matters, but it doesn't define 100% of who you are as an example or the, the world is zero sum. So if someone wins, someone else has to lose. Uh, it has to balance in the ledger versus the world is positive sum, which I think is generally the case, like in 89% of the cases since sort of the industrial revolution. Um, and to me, I think a lot of people have very, very well-intentioned been trying to help. Um, but they're saying that, you know, for instance, oh, well, the, the world's bad and it's not your fault. Um, it's their fault. And I'm a politician and if you vote for me, I'll fix it. And that's a very good way to get elected, right? Because they don't have to do anything, the voter. That, you know, your life isn't good and it's not your fault, it's their fault. And if you vote for me, I'll fix it. But I don't think the world is that simple normally. Um, and so to me, um, like a model, I think, that, that makes more sense, this is getting into oversimplification or whatever. Like the, the left is it's more socialist and the government needs to provide. And if it's not right, it's because the government's wrong, blah, blah. And the right is more self-determination, you know, agency, you, you need to build your own life. And I think a more nuanced, because the world is almost infinitely nuanced, is like what Rawls would say, which is, and this is Duncan's oversimplification, you know, you are your starting point plus effort. So the left is like, it's all about starting point in the government and the right's all, it's all about effort. And I'm like, no, it's both. <laughs> um, and so the oversimplification 
um, of things can lead people to feel like, you know, they're helpless, as an example. So this is learned helplessness, I think, is quite prevalent, being pushed in many, many places in a way that is intended to help, but may be doing quite a lot of harm. Um, and so one version of this, the opposite of learned helplessness is resilience, um, which is Martin Seligman, and you can train people in resilience. And one version of resilience in education is called growth mindset. If you get a question wrong, you don't give up. You try again with a different strategy and then you might succeed. Um, and so if you take Joe Bowler, we're talking about, you know, um, she would say that mindset is the most important component of improved outcomes in mathematics. And that is effectively not learned helplessness, it's learned help yourselfness. It is high resilience, it is growth mindset. Um, it is meaning that you'd rely on yourself and a whole lot of things. Um, and if you take some of those narratives and put them into a political arena, you would often find them on the right side of things and that will get some people very annoyed. <laughs> um, and so to me, they're proven to help significantly get better outcomes in maths, right? Um, and then we sort of, you know, Seligman, the whole thing, they're training people on resilience before going to, you know, they did a study on a million people, a million, sorry, a million um, American, um, you know, um, military. And they had, I think, an 80% reduction in post-traumatic stress because of this. And not just that, you get post-traumatic growth. So it's not just a decline of bad, you get an increase of good too. Um, and so to me, I think resilience is extraordinarily important and something that can be trained. There's ample evidence of this in both like, you know, war zones, jobs, you know, school. And I feel that some respects resilience is being said, I don't know if you're feeling bad. No, 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 don't try. Stop, stop. You need to be kind to yourself. And I'm like, <laughs> suffering in silence. You don't want, you know, depression, unnecessary depression and suicides. But at the moment we have depression and suicides going up and resilience through the floor, you know. And so to me, it's like we've got the worst of both worlds. What does is resilience look like? It, it depends yeah. in different areas. Uh, it, it massively depends. But like, if you're talking about mathematics, one just way to, 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 to measure it is like, how many questions will you get wrong till you give up? Some people won't even try. Like they say, no. Some they get one wrong and then they stop. Some it's two wrong and then they stop. Some it's three wrong. Eventually, most people, you know, will stop. If they've got, you know, 100 questions wrong, the most resilient person, you know, then they'll stop. So that's one version of resilience. Um, another one, which I sort of talk about a bit, at, um, there's an interesting book, um, Startup Nation, which is on Israel. Um, and they all have to go and do military there, um, compulsory. And it's not some sort of like, you know, they're around by people that want to wipe them off the map. It's not some sort of like thing. Like that, you know? And so they build resilience. You know, if we don't work together into this, when we go out on patrol or when we're being attacked, we die, right? <laughs> so this is real serious. And if you're like worried and not feeling it, that's, you know, not good, but also get it together or else we're all dead, right? So this is like, I suppose, different extremes, sort of like no, uh, you know, life or death circumstances, hopefully mathematics, like seventh grade or something to like life or death. Uh, and everything in between. Um, and there are strong examples of being able to build resilience from you know one end to the other and that done well, not always, you know, because you do need to have some time where you, I'm not saying you should be good to yourself in some respects, but not to the point where you don't push yourself to improve. But you don't want to push yourself to the breaking point. You also don't want to never push yourself at all. So there's, like, there's that idea of the happy median or, or Aristotle's golden mean. Um, so in, in like, you know, stre like no stress, like relax, you stress, which is good stress, distress, which is bad stress. So I find that happy medium, I think, has a lot of validity in many, many places um, and doesn't appear to be part of the conversation. Like the idea of good amount of pushing yourself, that some stress can be healthy, isn't really, I think, getting much airtime today. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I, 
I went and looked at what you said. I went and looked at Joe, Bol- Joe Bowler's stuff, and then I was looking at how one of the studies that they did on people being able to build any skill was dependent on them having like parents around them and i might be misphrasing this so please correct me but like having like caregivers around them and then also teachers which i thought was really interesting because one of the first questions i asked you about was like i asked you a poorly phrased question which was do you think that curiosity or like a lack of curiosity is having a negative impact because i suppose in my mind and i'm just throwing a hypothesis to you do you feel that if we could construct a greater sense of curiosity between people that we'd be able to forge a deeper sense of connection and when i say curiosity i know i keep going back to this uh, book thing but like you know how in the book you got those different sets of questions and one of the questions is um you know one of the questions talks about where the character would be placed like something about what was what like ask the child to like list out the different characters experiences and then another question is like when have you felt loneliness so one of the questions is like asking the child to like pick out pieces of the narrative but then the other question is asking the child to like bring up their own experience and then in my mind like you know how emotional vulnerability like when you feel like emotional pain or shame it lights up the same parts of your brain as when you experience physical pain mm-hmm. so like in my mind the difference between those two questions is if you're asking someone to like objectively state something that happened in a narrative i feel like that's one kind of question and like i would liken that to like walking down the road like same level of safety for a kid answering that question and walking but then if mm-hmm. you ask a kid to talk about when it's experienced loneliness i feel like that's more like sticking a kid on a skateboard because it's like because they're talking about loneliness it's like you're putting them in a place of vulnerability and i feel like if that question is like if the child shares something in that moment and then the parent answers with something that's like oh but you know you shouldn't be lonely or da 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 or like says something abrasive like it in my mind is like a greater there's a greater chance of like negative wiring being created because of the fact that they've been brought into such a vulnerable space so mm. it's like I feel like questions is like questions that you can ask that are almost like lily pad questions. So it's like mm-hmm. a lily pad question is kind of like if someone's already on like a bit of a story, it's like rather than like picking them up and throwing them somewhere else, it's like you kind of offer them like gentle things to stand on to continue the story flowing. And I think that like offering parents a tool of like little lily pads or something that, so that they just know that in those moments, their job is not to teach or tell. Their job is to sit back, listen, offer a gentle lily pad so the child can continue to articulate the story. So then one of their first experiences of say like articulating, you know, their emotional um, internal world is a positive one so that they don't feel shut down and scared of, yeah, like ever voicing yeah what's happening inside of them again. Yeah, um, I think you're talking about this sort of prototype book uh, that I've made where you just said <laughs> many, <laughs> many. Um, bringing that back up. It's just a question. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> like, um, so <laughs> there's plenty of um, children's books that are younger where there, there'll be some sort of, often they'll call them comprehension questions at the end. And mm. some of them might just be like, you know, what colour was the dog or something <laughs> like, you know, um, dog was brown. Um, and other ones can, can get a little bit deeper. Um, so this, um, to me, and I, I don't necessarily have like strong developed thoughts here, but trying to provide often a continuum of things um, can help more than just one thing. So part of it, one there is like being alone versus being lonely um, yeah. and how like being alone um, I, for, for me now, um, I think can be a, a really, really good experience. They say if you're lonely when you're by yourself, then you're in poor company. Um, if you're not ready to, you know, if you can't be by yourself and you're not ready to be with anybody else, blah, blah, blah. So, but then also being alone can be bad. And so to me, kind of having this spectrum to say like, yeah, it's okay to feel, you know, that things feel bad sometimes, but also this can be good, was trying to sort of help paint things in a different way. I, um, and to me, 
I think, you know, whether you're aware of it or not, like culture happens by default or by design, they say. Um, and so trying to provide um, frameworks where there was always, you know, a spectrum, and you know, was I think hopefully helping improve people's ability to discuss as parents and kids um, and also, you know, increase the development of, I suppose, emotional intelligence. No, I totally agree. I think I think it's brilliant. I think it's completely brilliant. But I suppose like the thing that I keep getting hooked on is like, what can we do to create better question or communication tools so that people, mm. because like a conversation is a two-way street and it's like how somebody lands or like the emotional kind of like whiplash from a conversation, like that is dependent mm. on how the other person handles it. And like therapy, it's like they have like two simple frameworks where it's like either you're kind of just opening up the space so that people can gently step in or they're trying to like gently like direct their mindset to a particular thing. Mm. And actually with the Jordan Peterson thing, I was listening to you and um, James talking about it. I think that his messaging, I think he knows exactly what he's doing because he's a therapist. Like he, he knew that he knew that the problem space was up here and he knows as a therapist, if he'd actually wanted to take that guy to the problem space, he should have gone step, step, step. But he just like whiplash, like threw him up there for the sake of his own ego. Like he wanted to, he wanted to score the point by framing that question in that particular way. Because he was, you know, his ego was kind of overruling him at the moment. But I think that, I don't know, I guess I'm just asking, like, I feel like there's a space for teaching people how to ask better questions because I think that that would create a deeper sense of connection and it might also aid this kind of resilience conversation because maybe if people felt more secure in the relationships that they had, maybe that would be beneficial. Mm. So is, and, you know, does uh, the quality of our questions being asked matter? Of course, I think definitely. Um, are you able to directly teach that? I think definitely. Is it easy to do and getting it? I'm not sure. So, so as an example, you know, parents will read books with kids, you know, most parents every night for like, you know, till they're six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you know. Um, and some books can have, uh, you know, a story of someone facing hardship and getting better or whatever. And other books, you know, just hardship and stuff gets worse or other books, well, life's always sunshine and rainbows or whatever else it is, right? And so I think that certain stories can have implicit uh, help, you know, and, and ways to build your awareness of the world, your, you know, ability to, you know, see resilience or, you know, to, to face adversity, whatever you want to call it. And then certain questions can also help unpacking that. But at the same stage, I don't know any question is somehow perfect. It's always going to lead to better outcomes. And so I think ultimately what the sort of plan from part of this was is to find the, you know, make up a number, like 50 most important concepts um, that you think are out there and the easiest way to have these concepts be accessible and then to put them into stories implicitly and then to have the framework at the end explicitly so that you can sort of see it. And so to me, like as an example, like growth mindset, fixed mindset, something we've talked a lot about here. One end they would say is not good and the other end they would say is good. Um, and this is an oversimplification. And then they'll give you examples of what a fixed mindset is and examples of what a growth mindset is. And this concept, um, I think, is very powerful, um, but you need to know how to do it in a way that is accessible because I think sometimes just saying you need a growth mindset isn't necessarily helping people develop a growth mindset. And so this is an example where there's a lot of research and education. I know some of the research says it doesn't work, but I would argue that the research that they've done is implementing it not well as opposed to done well that's very powerful. Um, and so the concept of mindsets, mindsets, being something that one can and should address from children right from, you know, year one was, I don't think really part of the conversation when I was at school, you know, you know, like whatever that in 1990 or something um, and is now. Mm. And so 
in the same way, um, mindsets, emotional intelligence, emotional, you know, um, you know, um, continuums, etc. I don't know were consciously considered about how they were implemented in books or necessarily having questions which try to show you, well, how is, you know, growth mindset done well? How's, you know, so for instance, like I exhibit a fixed mindset at certain times. I like to believe I exhibit a growth mindset at certain times. I like to think that I'm good by myself at certain times. I like to think that I'm bad by myself at certain times. And so to me, yeah, I don't know if this is helping. It can no, be done it is. now and it's just meant to be slightly leveling up and then, you know but it will never be able to not improve yeah no no it is helping i think it's like i'm i'm squishing two two things together because on the one hand there's the concept of the book and then on the other hand there's me trying to thrash around with the question of questions mm. <laughs> so everything that you're saying about the book makes yeah it makes perfect sense i think it's a brilliant resource i suppose yeah it's kind of interesting what you're saying too it's like if you wanted to teach parents to be more curious if you felt that curiosity would be a connector in terms of their relationship then then that should be exemplified with a story rather than a series of questions. You'd, you'd, you'd teach them or educate them in the fact that if their child's sharing or when their child comes home, like stepping up with curiosity would be key to creating connection rather than giving them, scaffolding them, you know, 50 questions. It would be more effective to do the story based on what you just said. Yeah, so I think one of the end games um, is that you have people discover the love of learning. Um, and that, I think, is a synonym for teaching yourself new things which is a synonym for innovation. Um, and if you've discovered the love of learning, then you're normally on your own journey um, and you can teach yourself you know, things and so you're kind of free in, in some respects. And so to me, um, I don't know, like I'm trying to help my nieces learn to read. and But I want to do it in a way where they enjoy it, right? Not that they feel like they're in some school. Um, and then not just that they're reading for fun, um, but then that they started reading that they've discovered a love of learning. And that's, I think, one of the end games, the only one. Uh, and so curiosity, I think, is one, another way of, you know, saying about the love of learning. And so I think you can create a series of books. Uh, and books are a very good user experience because everyone knows how to do them and people are they're not scared of them like iPads because they also come with, you know, games which are effectively crack for kids or whatever, right? They're not, they're not, they're not something useful in them. Um, and so to me, can you build curiosity? Yes, I think you definitely can more than nothing. You can't guarantee it, but you can tilt resources. So, for instance, if you could hope to have parents reading a book or two of yours a week, you know, when, when the younger books are a lot shorter, you know, they're not like a giant novel takes you, you know, whatever, 100 hours to get through. It's like, you know, 20 minutes or something. Um, these can foster, you know, this is, I think, a closed mind or an open mind. They can foster rote learning or curiosity. They can foster... There is one interpretation or there are multiple interpretations. Um, and the cumulative outcome of these things together is that I think you can have properly discovered love learning. And another, again, synonym of that I'd call self-authoring from Keegan. And according to him in the developed world, you know, of all adults, not just, you know, because ultimately the older you are, the more likely than this one third get to self-authoring, which is where they have discovered love learning, which is where they have curiosity to the point where they are teaching themselves things. They are authoring themselves. And so to me, I think that the portion of these can get up to 90% if you take, you know, different people like, you know, Bowler as an example. And so to me, can we definitely help foster curiosity? Yes. And can also go, you know, so and this is the thing, like indoctrination is teaching you what to think. Education is helping you believe what to think. So I think we're not trying to have people believe what we believe. We're trying to have people figure out what their own beliefs should be so that we can live in like a pluralistic society. Um, and so resources can tilt towards open or tilt towards closed. And to me, 
no one is perfect. It can't guarantee that it's always going to be open or whatever. Um, or you can't, you know, maybe you can guarantee it's closed. But to me, I think you can have that happen. How to do that? Very interesting question that will take a long time to answer and maybe never can be done. Yeah. And never be fully answered. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, okay. So, what do you think has been the relationship between like curiosity and empathy? Well, so there's different types of curiosity. So, you can be curious about science, you can be curious about politics. You can be curious about others. Um, and so to me, um, just as you can learn to get 100% on a maths test, I think you can learn to try to empathise with 100% of people. But to even understand yourself normally takes reflection, um, you know, journaling, counselling, you know, post-game analysis, etc. But then you can also walk a mile in other shoes. Um, so, for instance, reading a book can help you understand an experience that you yourself haven't had watching a TV show can help you have, understand some of the experience. And just, frankly, sometimes more than the people have had it. Um, and so to me, a non-trivial portion of the consumption that I do is to increase my empathy levels to be able to understand more. Um, it, it's not just loading in facts or something. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's really important to be a, a considered approach. You should and can build empathy systematically for yourself and others and should be trying to do such so each week. Yeah, okay. And who do you try and empathise with? Like, and I guess what does it look like? Does it look like kind of scaffolding like a mental model? Like in my mind, my version of empathy is trying to scaffold a mental model of someone. So every time I'm kind of interacting with them, I'm trying to pluck new pieces of information to synthesise it together. So it makes things infinitely interesting. Mm. Who do you like to try and, yeah, empathise with? Well, I mean... If you're, you know, got a job, you're trying to help somebody, and so you should be trying to understand as, as much of them as possible. Mm. Um, so, as an example, if you're trying to build a product for U.S. schools, you should be trying to understand children in U.S. schools. And so, there are plenty of books. Invisible Child is one of the ones I've been reading more recently. It's about growing up, you know, in poverty in New York City. Um, I did not grow up in New York City and not in poverty. And so, you know, this is something that's not, you know, foreign for me. And you go through these things and you understand, and then. There are examples of, you know, people being teachers, you know, and, and writing books and other stuff or in podcasts. But then outside of um, work, so, so effectively, if you're trying to help, for instance, education get better, and if you're focusing on seventh grade, well, you need to understand as much about seventh grade kids as possible, and you need to understand about the different types of people that are teaching and also their approaches. And so you just find the places where those people, you either get to speak to them and ask about the experience, but, or where others have done the work for you in like a book or a podcast or a documentary and you can go and watch those things. So to me, yes, I'm systematically trying to empathize more, but then also outside of work, there's areas like, I don't know, three, four years ago, you know, it was sort of understanding or finding more about coercive control. It was a new concept to me. And then, you know, I was like, okay, what is this? And then you just end up listening. You know, I ended up listening to a bunch of podcasts, you know, one of them is called the survivor stories. And it's like awful. And people talking about, but like, you know, it's, it's actually quite instructive. Um, and you go on and you learn. And so I suppose if you look back 10, 15 years ago, I was mainly trying to learn about people that had done really well in something. So they're like a really, really good politician or academic or sports person or musician or, you know, you know business person, entrepreneur. But then now, there's like, and I sort of, I think I spend much, much less time doing that. And now trying to learn about, for instance, people that, that have had awful outcomes, not just people that have graduated, and as well as standard people. You know, and everything in between and not just, you know, there was a long time where it was just entrepreneurs um, and nothing you can't learn from that. But like, I don't know, I might spend sub 10% of my time learning about entrepreneurs today uh, because I'm not saying that you don't, that you can't learn from that. But I think I need to understand as much about, for instance, seventh grade children as I can 
to help them. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny because I keep thinking about what you were talking about in terms of, I don't know if it's, um, if you should say this, but like women having more of a one-to-one -one approach and then guys, so it sounds like you're creating mental models, but you're doing it on a scalable kind of zoomed out with a zoomed out vision. You're not looking at specific people trying to empathize with specific individuals and then synthesize understanding from each of them. It's more of like you can do it on mass or on scale, creating kind of archetypes that are more, yeah, I guess not based on one, based on many which is kind of interesting. Whereas I only, I tend to empathize with one specific person intimately and yeah. then another and another and another, but I'm not, I don't have as many big, big scale archetypes in my head. Well, so the products that we're building say for schools, like I'm not the teacher in a classroom. I'm trying to help. And we're yeah. trying to help as many as possible, you know, I'm not trying to help just one teacher. We're trying to help yeah, all yeah. teachers. And so I suppose from that nature, I need to try to think about this and how it scales. Um, Definitely. It makes sense. Yeah. If you're a therapist, then you've got like, I don't know how many cusp clients they have, you know, or if you're like, for instance, an, a an AFL coach, there's, you know, how many people on the team, or you might be just like a, a tennis coach and you're just coaching one person. So, yeah, so yeah. You, it might be different. And so then you, you, you need to focus on whatever your Rafa Nadal's coach and just his mindset and getting super deep. And that's optimal for that. But for me, we're trying to build products that address the broadest portion of students and the broadest portion of teachers, not on a one size fits none, but in a one size fits all. Because even in a school, like um, a school, you know, there'd be multiple math teachers as an example. They don't buy, this math teacher buys this, this math teacher buys this, the school buys the same. And some schools are far more academic than others, but there's normally always some kids that are excelling and always some kids that are really struggling. And so even the smallest microcosm you can do, which is at one school, contains a broad spectrum of people. <laughs> so yeah. from, from what we're doing, it doesn't, I think, make sense to only know about one person because we're trying to help a broad spectrum of people. Yeah. Definitely. It, it, I completely agree. It definitely doesn't. I find it quite, I've had to accept that my mindset does go one-to-one. -one, and I, I don't know if this is a gender thing or not, but it, yeah, it's certainly not particularly productive in terms of scalability. But it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Do you think that that is a gender thing? I don't know if we should be talking about gender. Uh, <laughs> oh, Bill Mayer, I kind of like this is a quote from Bill Mayer, which I empathize with. Um, we, we spent ages with the right talking about whether um, climate change was a thing. Like, no, climate change is not just a theory. Climate change is real. And now the left are like, biology is just a theory. I'm like, no, biology is real. <laughs> uh, if you give, you know, women, testosterone their voices break and they grow facial hair much more than they otherwise were and so the hormones do matter i think it's very hard to say this now is gender partially a social construct yes is it also is there part of it in biology yes what portion good question but to say that none of it is biology i think is tough um i don't have any views on if what you're saying is more of a gendered thing i i, I don't know um, so I'm sorry, I don't have any thoughts about that one. Yeah. What did you mention? You mentioned something about it on something that I read of yours. It said something about one-to-one -one versus one-to-many. I don't know what it was. It was something about scalability and it was, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, in this, so like, if you, oh, hey, are you still there? Oh. I, I, I should um, be. Hang on. Oh, hang on. This is also, I need to get oh, this yeah. charger too. Yeah. Okay. Humans, um, the, the, our biology um, doesn't update that fast. And until extraordinarily recently, we were hunter-gatherers and we lived in symbiosis. Uh, so 
the, the, the different roles people played were whatever optimized the number of humans. Whoever had more humans won. So our biology and the stories are optimized around hunter-gatherer you know, outcomes. Um, and so the, the bigger, stronger you know, sex in um, a species is the defender. Sometimes that is the female, but most of the time it's the male. Um, and the one that doesn't have to do the fending does more of the you know, raising of the young or rearing of the young. Um, and so in humans, men, they had to fight and protect the tribe and they had to go and hunt. Um, and if the tribe was being attacked, the women and children ran away because that was the actual size. If all the men die, the next generation of the tribe is the same number. If all the women and children die, the tribe is dead, right? So it makes sense for the women and children to run away. That's why when you're on the Titanic and it's sinking, women and children on ships first, right? If there's a war, men go off and die, you know, because this is what's going to optimize the number of humans. Uh, there's not some sort of evil patriarchy. It's literally just whatever stories optimize the number of humans are the ones that, you know, prevailed. Um, and so in that, if you're needing to go and as a male protect the tribe or, or to hunt, you need to be less caring about, you know, worried about your longevity. And if you need to look after the young bro, you care more about humans. So one is caring more about humans, one is caring less about humans. You need to go and stab things, et cetera, right? So, so on average, women care more about humans. Um, and you see that in the role. So jobs really about humans, so nurses, um, you know, teaching and stuff, it's like 75% females, right? And jobs which are less humans, so things like finance and engineering, it's 75% males. That doesn't mean that there aren't females that like that or males that don't like humans more. But on average, that was the case because that's what actually led to the most number of humans. Now, some of these jobs scale. This is with James. So, for instance, if you have you know funds management or finance, if you're managing $25 million or $250 million, it doesn't necessarily need more humans. Or if you're doing engineering. But you can't have 25 kids in a classroom or then 250 kids in a classroom and have the same outcome. It, it doesn't really work. Or if you're doing nursing, you can't nurse, you know, 25 people or 250, you know, at some point it doesn't work. And so a quirk of, you know, thing, there was no scale. Back in the day, there was simpatico. Um, but today, where well, you can get scale because machines can do things, as opposed to humans being the only way to scale anything, then there is certain roles like this. So is that, I think, maybe what you were referring to? Yeah, that's exactly what I was referring to. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of jumping around a tiny bit, but I did want to go back to that. In terms of strengths and weaknesses and your lens on the way that we've evolved, hmm. how does it sit with that in terms of like within a tribe, do you expect that there would have been different people with different strengths? So, for example, I mean, some people say, and I don't know how I sit with this, but that ADHD, for example, was a biological benefit. Some hmm. people are saying because they say that, you know, people with ADHD tend to be very alert, very present and very hmm. reactive. So if there's a stick that breaks, we'll go and explore it without too much fear. <laughs> so mm. some people are saying that, that, you know, it was like that having that kind of like dispersed kind of biology was a benefit. So then if there was, well, I suppose it's first would be, do you agree with this idea of dispersed biology? And then secondly, if that is the case, how does that fit within the strengths and weaknesses conversation? Yeah, so th there is definitely neurodiversity to use that term uh, from my perspective. But also I think a lot of people have said like, you know, biology, um, socio, um, and then psychology. Also, what is it? Culture. What is it? The three model: biology, social, and what is this annoying the hell out of you? Biosocial. <laughs> Biosocial. You're very precise. I really respect that about you. 
social um, <laughs> psychological model. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't necessarily have um, strong views. So social, biological, and psychological model um, is where a lot of people think and different things are. So um, I don't know if there is a good reason why this is the case like from a from an evolutionary perspective so just to give you a sort of another sort of example like there are examples of homosexuality in other animals so in apes in dolphins in birds right um and so it is extraordinarily reasonable to me that there is homosexuality in humans and it's not just a social construct that it's you know from this having said which to me, if that was the dominant one, so for instance, 90% of people were homosexuals, then we'd have far less humans. And so it would seem to me that it would be a minority because the humans that had more humans ultimately, you know, bred out the ones that didn't. And so to me, like, are there examples of homosexual and other animals? Yes. Are they being socially indoctrinated by, you know, TikTok? Like, no. It's a problem, right? um, and so to me, therefore, humans having homosexuality as part of this is not just, you know, something that someone you know it, it seems extraordinarily reasonable um but i don't see why that is an evolutionary benefit if you're that literally to optimize the number of humans it doesn't i can't on surface value see that so it's just a um you know i don't know quirk of biology or something that makes uh, so sense yeah, yeah yeah no that does make sense but then when you look at like some people from what i've read attachment theory the mm. fact that we've got that broad spectrum of attachment types I read somewhere that that was of biological benefit because what that meant was scaffolding these different attachment styles meant that in the event that something happened in terms of like the planet's evolution or something natural, we we have a better chance of surviving because different people would be leaning into these different um, different ways of living. So one particular attachment style might you know be in favour depending on the circumstances. And I suppose that's the lens that I guess I was trying to apply neurodivergence to. Like, for example, Elon Musk, like he's, I'm guessing, very autistic. Well, at least a little bit autistic and like a lot of our maths geniuses. So it's like autism has a function. ADHD in some respects has a function. And I just feel that, I, I don't know, I'm not sure where the conversation should land in terms of strengths and weaknesses, mm. but it does have some benefit maybe. Or I don't know, do you just think? Mm. So just for people like attachment styles, I think the main ones, so there's like secure, which is the one that they say is better Then there is avoidant, then there is insecure. And there's sometimes a fourth one, which I can't recall right now. Um, this is an area that I have, again, very, very sort of initial thoughts about. Um, all else equal, the stronger a tribe was that bonded together, the better they were able to survive. Um, and so this is through the good times and sort of the bad. So in, in the good times, bonding together, part of it, like, you know, Music is literally wired into your soul. So all tribes I know of, whether it's banging sticks or dancing, you can see this, you know, with the first people's nations of Australia or, you know, African tribes or whatever else it is. They had what we would consider, I suppose, versus today's things, rudimentary music, but they all had music. That's them celebrating and having fun together, right? And so to me, being attached together more meant that if you were attacked, you were more likely to work as a unit together rather than run off and look after number one. And so if you could collaborate, um, collaborate better, you were going to be stronger. And so to me, there's an evolutionary reason why being attached is better and being avoidant and insecure isn't better because, you know, if you did not work as a unit, it's not about this dystopian future after we've been hit by a meteoroid and we get to operate women, all these things. Like, no, no, then you just rescatter until you form tribes again. So literally, if you're younger as a child and you're held on the mother's chest a lot more versus being put in a stroller, you literally bond more because it, it calms you down. This is the sympathetic nervous system. And 
This means that when you grow up, you've got a more secure attachment style, which means you're more part of the unit. And if you're more part of the unit, someone's coming to you know, mess up our tribe. I am here to be helping as part of the unit. So I would argue that the evolutionary reason for that is that it makes you stronger together, not that there's a time when in dystopian future that, that the, the other ones work for it. So to me, again, homosexuality, I think it is in the biology, but I don't see how it helps with the number of humans. But I do see how secure attachment styles, I think, does help with more humans and how the opposite of that hurts. And so that means that you wanted to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does make sense. And I think you're correct. And it was just one piece of research that I'd read that was just saying that, like, yes, 100% with what you were saying, like, if the parent treats the child in a way that feels secure, they are more likely to develop a secure attachment. But they were saying that the reason that there's a spectrum in the first place did have to do with survival. And that was just one resource that I'd read. So perhaps it's arguable. But it just it struck me as interesting because, yeah, it just struck me as interesting because it was an explanation of biodiversity and it was essentially saying the diversity enables us to have a better chance of su surviving. So that's why, I, and then I drew the I drew the parallel between that and neurodivergence. Well, so this is what I was saying is it's the opposite. The, yeah. the, the more the more you were secure, the more you were likely to survive. Yes. No, but that and, that says this too. But they said that there was yeah. still that divergence in the first place. Yeah. Well. I, yeah. I, I don't have a strong view on this. Um, and I think that people do have different starting points we've talked about, but and that, that doesn't define your end point. Um, and to me, um, don't try to change the past, try to build a better future. Your starting point is what it is. Um, try to help the starting point for others be better in the future. This is like rules. Um, and try to help this. So to me, um, you know, the only way you can justify inequality according to rules is if the inequality helps those at the bottom. And so what you want ideally is the best starting point you can have to life. And some people would say everyone should have an equal starting point. They've tried that. It's called communism. The starting point is lower than it is in the liberal democracies, say, such as Australia. And if it doesn't matter. So you don't have people trying to go to a communist society. And I don't know if there are any really left uh, anyway. Um, and so to me, um, yeah, I think one way to live a good life is to try to improve the starting point for others as much as possible and particularly those at the bottom of the, the spectrum of where starting points are but that they also need the story that you need to do something with that starting point so if you have a really really bad starting point like a female in afghanistan it's going to be a rough life right but it doesn't matter if you're given a great starting point if you're also given the story well it's on them to make my life good so to me you need to be able to have that more nuanced thing we should be trying to have the best starting point possible but we also need to have the story that you need to do something with it to, to build your life, um, to try to build a good life. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, but like I don't feel that, so, you know, debating at school is almost by definition zero sum. Then most sports are, there's, there's a winner and a loser. Um, but from my perspective, um, I'm not worried about trying to be right or wrong or necessarily someone feeling like they need to change their mind or agree with me or whatever. It's so the two main questions is like one, what did you learn? And hopefully you learned something and hopefully they learned something too. And then do you want to have another conversation again? Um, and so to me, the world is mainly positive sum and done well, conversations are positive sum. And I feel that a conversation can be positive sum if those two criteria are met. You learn something and you want to have another conversation again. And if someone has a different point of view to you, fantastic, because normally you don't learn that much from people that have the same point of view as you. But unfortunately, sometimes people have different points of view can operate in a zero-sum fashion, which means you don't end up trying to understand each other 
or incorporate parts of what they're saying into your understanding of things, but instead zero-sum competition. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What do you usually do when you disagree with someone? What's your strategy? Well, this is the thing. Like, I don't think necessarily of the world in that way. Mm. Um, so to me, if we're talking about it from a work perspective, it's not about, oh, uh, well, I'm you know going to dig my heels in and make sure that we go with my direction or something. It's like, well, if someone has a different point of view, which is not, so disagreement, I would say, is not how I would characterize it. Why, why do they have a different synthesis to you? So you're both looking at the same problem space. And this is, so then first of all, okay, well, what is the logic tree that underlies this? And somewhere underneath this, you'll have a different assumption. So let's just say, I think there are three things that are important and they think there are four things. And I've missed one. And I say, oh, that fourth thing should be included. Or no, no, actually, it is superfluous. Let's get rid of it. So let's just say you end up going with the four things. And then I think, you know, win, win, loss, loss. And they think win, 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 loss, right? And they, okay, well, why do you think the one that's different where you have a win and they have a loss? Why is that? And then can we understand that variable at higher resolution? And you normally like, go speak to 10 teachers. And once you've done that, you realize, well, actually, it is a win. And if you all have the same pieces and you'll have the same view of those pieces, normally the synthesis is the same. And so to me, we are just trying to improve our understanding and as such, our ability to help with, say, improving education. And so this is not about disagreements or anything. It's about trying to understand what actually the other person is saying and then trying to incorporate what they're saying into what you're saying and see you know, whether you can point out an ego solution or a blind spot. So yeah, literally the whole terminology of disagreement is I think probably counterproductive. I agree with that. One of my products has a, a quadrant called disagreement, and I hate myself for not calling it empathy <laughs> because it's, well, it's, just, it's just trying to understand. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was a mistake. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. It's logical. How often do you think? Like, how often is the problem? I know with Ed Rollo it might be different because the problem space is probably better scaffolded. But in terms of when people come to you with a personal problem, how often do you think it is that they can actually see the problem versus there's a blind spot? Well, it depends. Like sometimes when someone's coming to you, you don't need to solve the problem. I didn't know that. Like 20-year-old Duncan, they just, they just, they just want to, a shoulder to cry on or just a place to vent. And there's a thing called conscious complaining, which is positive sum venting. I just didn't understand that venting could be positive sum. I was like, do something about it, right? And so the first thing I'm trying to understand if it's a personal thing is like, if they just need a space. If they need a space, cool, just listen, you know, and you don't need to try to problem solve. So, to, so that's, that's sort of one part. But if they are wanting to do problem solving, which, you know, can, can be the case, then what are you sort of thinking about? Um, and again, like, I don't know, I remember like, you know, reading a lot of, you know, Buddhism stuff, like, you know, whatever, like, you should just accept things. And I, for a while, I was like, yeah. And then you get, you know, go through the stoicism, you know, the area. And now I'm like, look, there's validity to Buddhism and there's validity to stoicism. You know, the obstacle is the way, et cetera, right? Um, but not everywhere, always. You know, everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, the first thing I'll be talking about with them is like, okay, what is the actual job to be done? What is, you know, the, have you meeted the problem space? When you meet the problem space, is it covering most of the problem space or is it only covering half of it so we need to get this done properly? Now we need to go through the solution sets. We need to have at least more than one option from the solution because otherwise you can't calibrate whether it's any good. And when you go through and look at this world this way, whether it's should you buy at this apartment or not or things, you can normally drive insight. 
Um, you can also then go and have spurious data, like your data mining to try to get the model to tell you what you want based on your intuition or something. But, you, you know, that I think is actually much harder to do to delude yourself than it is if you have no model, when you're just kind of rummaging around. And so this systematic way of thinking, I think you can apply to almost anything. You shouldn't apply it to everything, but you can if you want to. And in the work sense, I think you probably should. Outside of work, you should definitely not apply it to everything. I probably apply it to 50% of stuff outside of work. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. It's interesting too, what you were talking about. Was it conscious complaining? Conscious complaining is positive sum venting according to certain. So um, yes, I don't know if you've heard of this. So like no. some venting is just like having a bitch about somebody <laughs> um, and it's not helping you sort of things. It's like making you more annoyed at something, right? Yeah. Whereas conscious complaining can be like letting it out. It's cathartic. You're talking through certain things. You've been able to say this with somebody around who's not necessarily judging. And at the end of that, that is and of itself was what was going to help. You don't now need to go and then, you know, solve things. So to me, some things solve themselves. This is another thing that's really interesting. <laughs> some things that are, quote, problems, but everything is a problem because, you know, the solution to all problems is problem solving. And some things that are already good, you can make better. So some things, let's just say, this is called a problem, but it's just not saying it's bad. Or let's say it's a bad problem, right? You should solve. Some things, you just leave them by themselves and they solve themselves. Like they peter out. And other things don't need to be solved. Some fires you should let burn. This is one of the things that I talk to early managers. I'm like, there will always be fires. Always. And if you try to spend time putting out fires, then you, all you are is a firefighter. We are net progress deliverers. We are not firefighters. You should fight fires sometimes, but you can't do it all the time. And so you need to let certain fires burn. And so to me, that was an anthema. I didn't understand that at all 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that helps. No, it does. It does. Do you have any tips for working out which fires to let burn and which to, which to attack? <clears throat> From a work perspective, yes. Um, in a personal one, I suppose, uh, yes, but I don't understand how frameworks. I wrote a blog about this, I think, called Net Progress Deliverers, Not Firefighters. Um, so anything at large will burn down the company if you don't address it right and so you kind of need to address it immediately so smalls you pretty much let all smalls run right then some smalls burn out some smalls turn into mediums turn into larges and if it goes from a small to a medium then probably address it then before it gets to a large and then every now and then you go from nothing to a large and you just jump um something really bad has happened and you do this. so to me you know they say don't sweat the small things and everything is a small thing uh that's not true but most things are small things so don't bother with you know putting out smalls um, largest address immediately, mediums, if you have the time, but if there's something else, something else that you have to do, then let it be and come back to it a bit later. Yeah. What, what, I don't know if I can ask you this, but like, what is a large problem that happens? What, what is a problem that crops up at Ed Roller that goes from small to large? Is it like that someone's done something or someone's lied? I, I keep assuming everything's personal because I guess that's the way that I think, but what are some kind of large scale problems that pop up? If you can say. <laughs> uh, like I think there are things like you know bullying, um, people stealing money, you know, <laughs> you know, etc. Um, things that things that have happened, right? Um, so I think, for better or worse, if you run a company for long enough with enough people, many of the things that humans do, um, so it's people problems, um, will happen, and <laughs> some of these things are not fun, uh, very much not fun. Um, and so to me, you know. Uh, sometimes you have to do, somebody has to deal with these things. Not, it's not, not always me has to deal with everything, but some things are my responsibility. And so you, you try to do the best you can. Yeah. So 
So the fires that you have to put out are typically because people have done something and then you have to... I'll talk about this from a people lens, but also business needs to go well. So as an example, like you can't be losing money constantly. <laughs> you know, you, you need to be able to feed yourself. Um, and so some problems are well, what this product is not performing as we hoped it was. Why? We need to fix this else we are not going to have enough revenue to be able to continue employing all these people or whatever. Um, and so that's a different type of problem, but I, I find normally that the people ones hurt more. Um, it's just so much easier to kind of, or, you know, like it's, it's impossible to like, or not, not impossible, it's much harder to not get emotionally involved when there are people involved. When it's not people, it's easier to kind of let it be for the weekend or something <laughs> rather than be like, uh, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Has your like level of trust towards people, how's it evolved and changed? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so um, my sort of rule of thumb is that things will go bad um, and some people will abuse your trust. Yeah. But hopefully it's sort of less than 10% of people. So don't let that less than 10% of people or circumstances embitter you and turn you into a paranoid person that doesn't trust people. You, you want to be able to give people the benefit of the doubt to things and the things that go bad, that's fine. That's the price of business. That's the price of, you know, friendships, as an example. People will let you down some of the times. Um, and so, yeah, it's like you, you want some of the upside. You want to give people your responsibility, autonomy, you know. You want to, you know, things, cool. Um, so we're not trying to run, like, re the responsibility, not reportability. We're not trying to run, like, a big brother, you know, nanny state. We're trying to provide... A foundation that provides multiplier effects for people, and some people will abuse this uh, thing, and that's not good. But when you find out, there it's very clear, and without any this is there's no second chances. Um, but that doesn't mean you change the whole setup for the people that have been able to take that trust, you know, and do well with it. Um, so to me, it's a trick, you know, not a trick, but you know, to try to not let bad circumstances embitter you uh, and change the rules that uh, might stop that one thing, but also have second order consequences of harming all the good people that have been doing really, really well. Um, so in some respects, certain amounts of allowing bad things to happen is actually optimal net good because it allows very good things to happen as well that you didn't necessarily know about. And that not, not everyone has to get approval for every single thing all day, every day. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So like, I, so I guess it also has to be like a scalable model. Like you can't go around deciding if you do or don't trust every single individual. It's like you have to have rules that scale for the whole organization. And so those rules should reflect the experiences that you've had with all of the people on mass. Mm. You sort of see like, well, so to me, they say trust is built, um, faith is given. So you need to build trust. The more trust that you've built, the more you know autonomy or responsibility that you will have. Mm. How do you build trust? I'm like, good question. If you can't figure it out, you haven't earned any. And so to me, I'm like, go figure it out. I, I did this. And then the normal sort of uh, heuristic that I use is smalls, just do it. Don't tell, they tell me. Mediums, do it in FYI me. Larges, we need to have a discussion before you do it. What is a small and a medium and large? Good question. You need to figure that out. And if I can't trust you to figure that out, then you don't get the autonomy. But you go from small amount of autonomy and responsibility to sort of people like, I don't know, Jeremy, who I've worked with for a long time. I have absolutely no idea what he's doing. No. Um, like 90% of the time. And we discuss, we have one one hour meeting a week where normally that's enough. We don't necessarily need to speak like to like approve things. We'll be in meetings where we're trying to make progress on something else. And so to me, it's really interesting. You want to give good people as much 
responsibility, you know, as possible um, and bad people as little as possible. <laughs> but you normally start off with not much and it's earned. Um, and you can, some people can earn extraordinarily fast. Let's say you're a senior person coming on. We work very close with someone to begin with, but by the end of a month, hopefully, you're like, yeah, you should be COO or whatever else it is. And we've built major amounts of trust really, really, really quickly. Um, so yeah, that's one way I think about it. Yeah, that's interesting. What is like the distribution of jobs across Ed Roller? I'm not 100% sure what that means. Um, oh, <laughs> sorry. Know, like, like, you have, like, is there a lot of people, for example, because I, I was trying to imagine what the different kinds of levels of responsibilities would be. And then I was trying to imagine like administrative staff versus writing staff versus strategy people. Like what are the percentages or kind of fractions, I guess, of the team? So maybe this is like one thing that I'll, I'll talk about from this lens. Like, you know, we're trying to figure out the strategy for this year at the moment. And a lot of that is the product strategy. Um, but there's input, like from me, there's input from the sales side because they're things. There's input from the content side. We speak to our customers and they have input, maybe not necessarily in an official sense, but when we're speaking to them this, then there's the sort of platforms, which is our version of the technology. And then they've got more of a, say, the UX side. And so I'm going to argue that for this strategy or product thing, all of these people are part of this team, but no one is effectively on a team called 2023 strategy or something, right? <laughs> um, and who adds what value? It depends. Like, it's not like Duncan gets 20% and Jeremy gets 20% and then the head of sales gets 10% and whatever else. It's like, no, hopefully the best ideas get put in place and bad ideas are found out quickly and hopefully removed. And where do they come from? Well, good ideas can come from anywhere. And so we try to have a system that is allowing for this. Um, and so to me, you kind of want to empower people to be able to do the right thing, but also not allow a place where one person can break everything. Like they can go and like take the whole company down. So you're trying to do this dichotomy of like, you know, making sure that no one person can kill the company whilst allowing as many people to do as much good as possible. But if you, if you put like the constraints around it too tightly, you end up suffocating or, or like, you know, you know, um, lowering innovation or improvement. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think of um, Ray Dalio's? Is it metrocracy, metatrocracy? Maybe you can no, and say the word. <laughs> yeah. Well, merit, like, you know, things are on merit and a meritocracy um, is this. Uh, look, I think it's a nice idea. Now, in some respect, people have got said merit is now a bad word. Um, so um, Michael Sandel, who's a um, philosopher, a professor of philosophy at Harvard, wrote a book called, I think, The Tyranny of Meritocracy or something to that extent, talking about how the concept is bad. And I think that, again, this is an oversimplification. Um, so um, the idea, like a pure meritocracy means that all that matters is your effort, right? Um, and I would say that that's definitely not true. Um, that your starting point does matter, but that also effort does matter. So it's not that, like, let's say that a female in Afghanistan puts in as much effort as I do, as you know, a person in Australia, um, it's very unlikely that they're gonna make as much progress as I am because the Taliban, I think are shocking uh, you know, <laughs> the way they treat women and just generally not great. Um, and so starting point does matter, right? But also merit does matter. But a meritocracy would say that merit is the only thing that matters and the starting point is irrelevant. And I say that both are important and that ultimately what we're trying to optimize is to improve the starting point for those at the bottom as much as possible generation on generation. So that, for instance, the children of the people at the bottom today have a much better starting point than their parents did. 
Um, and so inside of, say, Bridgewater, with Ray Dalio talking about an idea meritocracy, good ideas can kind of come from any, anywhere. I think the, the first thing is, like, I don't think the concept of meritocracy is necessarily bad. Um, I just wanted to talk to what I see as the major pushback on it at the current time. Um, you can't necessarily have things be, you know, so to me, companies are not democracies normally. They are autocracies. They can be benign autocracies or, or you know, malign autocracies. Um, and so ultimately, you don't have things come to a vote, but you do want Hang good on, ideas. Can you break down benign and malign for me? Oh, there's a malignant is, you know, a, a bad cancer, a benign cancer is this. So, so uh, benign, of course. So yep. benign autocracy is where the leaders are doing the right thing for the common good. So there's yep. an oversimplification, like what is good for your narrow individual self outcome and what is good for the common good? Uh, so Sandel would say that the two key questions philosophers have been asking themselves at the beginning of time is what does it mean to live a common, a good life and what is the common good? Uh, and I think those are questions that cannot ever really be answered. And that's great because, as they say, answers that you cannot question are much worse than questions you cannot answer. Um, and so to me, I think that a good leader is having the common good as the key thing they're looking after and they're making progress. Um, democracies, however, were set up assuming that at some point there would be a leader in power who wasn't after the common good. And so you wanted to make it so they didn't have absolute power. It was kind of the opposite of a king. Um, and companies, not necessarily. And so companies, so, so you know, there's normally you know, founders and hopefully if they're good, they get, you know, make, make, make a progress. And then after they're kind of gone, then they're kind of in caretaker mode often, you know, then they kind of just go sort of sideways as opposed to sort of building new things. Um, so anyways, most companies are autocracies um, and good ones optimize for the common good well. And they are able to get input from many, many places, but they don't at the end of this. So let's just say, for argument's sake, there are nine people on this team, which there aren't. At the end of it, we don't have a vote and anything that gets five or more votes gets put in. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Having said which, you can't just necessarily go and overrule people because you might not necessarily have people on board. So anyway, so this is a very long answer. Yeah. No, no, it's a good answer. It, it, is, it is a good answer. Do you have like a disposition so then depending on what the problem is to be solved that each individual's, I guess, vote has a weight? I think that was a component. Do you have that consideration around it or? Normally, you're trying to incorporate ideas together in a way which you can show the overall proposal and you're trying to then calibrate multiple options and you're trying to say which option is the best trade-off, which we believe will give us the most progress and in the case of Ed Rollo, the biggest improvement to education. So... You're saying, look, we've got 2023, we're going to come up with, I'm just making up a number now, but normally, like, let's say four strategies. And then we're going to try to rank, understand what they are, not just understand one component of what each is. And then we're going to try to rank these in order and to understand the different trade-offs. Because normally strategy, let's just say strategy one is on average the best. Strategy two will be better than strategy one in some area, but overall, probably not as good if you should go with it. And so what you end up having these strategies be and how to actualize them well has to be because you know we're working with large teams the input of many people um mm -hmm. and so trying to just even explain what the strategy is is very difficult and so to me without writing things down and we normally use spreadsheets because the spreadsheets can contain variables and you can measure variables you can put so most things should be explained quantitatively and qualitatively and if you can't do it both normally your ability to understand is much less and so maybe i should write this blog explain things quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, and yeah, so to me, that's 
what we have found is a better way to try to explain what it is we're trying to say. Like you even understand what it is you're trying to put forward is very difficult. Please do write that blog. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to me, it's, you know, you should have a model, and a model should have a number associated with certain components of it. But it should not only have a number; it needs to have the qualitative explanation of what it is. And the number that goes next to it, it depends on what it is you're doing, because the, the optimal number to describe something is often, you know, difficult to understand. Um, but done well can sum in a way which means you can compare things. Um, so yeah. Does this like I'm imagining now in my head like a pyramid? So I'm like thinking there's like the big strategy, and that would be able to be quantitative and qualitative, and then there's baby strategies that exist within that. Is that correct, or how does it how does it look holistically? Well, it depends. So you can understand like the different components of it. So there, there might be like this strategy has five components. So you've got the map, then this strategy has four components, and they're different in this. And the overall outcome is net improvement to education. Or you know you also need to understand what the revenue outcomes will be. This is business, and so you need to, it's not the only thing you should consider, but I don't think you should ever not consider the revenue outcomes. You should also consider the cost outcomes. Like, you know, you, you know, the only rule is that you cannot die, they say, um, and dying, death is running out of cash. Um, and so, yes, your strategy should take into account in the case of a role of improving education and revenue and cost. And so you need to be able to forecast the improvement to education. This is making an objective measure for subjective things. You need to better forecast the revenue and as far as my experience, like forecasting revenue is bloody difficult and I've not been able to make it into a, an exact science, but that doesn't mean you should give up minutes like, oh, like, and then you need to forecast cost. And then you go through and you calibrate, you're like, well, option one says this much improvement to education, says this much revenue and this much cost. Option two says this much improvement, this much revenue, this much cost. And you know, go through and you're like, well, the weighted best strategy we think is option two. And some of them go, look, I don't know, because I think this means that the revenue number is a bit, you know, pessimistic. And here's what should be that good, good point. And also, you know, we can leverage chat GPT and that can help speed up our ability to do something. Okay, cool. You know, um, so that means the cost side is overly, you know, pessimistic too. So you can have a, a, a discussion. Whereas if you're just like, well, I like option two. Like, why? Because green is a really good color and there's lots of green in there. And I'm like, what about the improvement to education? What about, you know, revenue? So, so you, you basically, I don't know, like to me, I don't understand how you could have a strategy for a company without, you know, to me, like the core thing, improving education in the case of it, it, it might be if you're a healthcare company, it's like, cool, number of patients that, you know, die or something, if it's really bad, like you're an ER, you know, <laughs> and, and then revenue and costs, you know, this, yeah, I think uh, this is the fundamentals. It's interesting though, because I haven't heard anyone else in all of the companies that I work with talk about objective and subjective measures with this much clarity. Never once, truly. I didn't so, used to. <laughs> yeah, where does this? Yeah, I used to. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, you, you have to. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, like, yeah. No, can you tell me yeah. more about how how you guys came up with it? I know it's part of your secret sauce, but can mm. I have some indications of the metrics? No, I mean so. The, the reason that these things come up with in some respects is because otherwise I found it difficult to have a positive sum discussion. Mm -hmm. Someone would be saying that they think this is important and it is, but is it more or less important than this other thing? Like, you know, point A is more important than B, but also both point A and point B are important. And what are they important to? Well, actually, you think that this is important to improving education. Cool. That is very important. But also, what about its impact on revenue? Okay, I have to think about that too. And I'm like, yeah, we do, right? Because otherwise we can't run out of money. Like we can't. 
Like unless you have got a massive bank account and you're willing to pay for everything, we have to think about this, right? And they're not just revenue costs. And so then they're like, oh, okay. And so without having frameworks like this, it's very difficult to see the full picture. And as such, it's very easy to go with something which is missing things or has an ego distortion and blind spot. And so if you're able to write them out and to do the work to try to have an, you know, an abbreviation of, of reality, but better than nothing, just total guesswork, you know, this is, this is a systematic approach, not guessing, then you know, hopefully the, the, the average outcome is much better. Yeah, that makes sense. And like in terms of, so if you're trying to scaffold out all of the, is it like a big equation that looks at, you know, what the teachers thought, what the students thought, what this thought, what that thought, and then it kind of all um, kind of comes up to one pointy end or what does it look like as an equation? Yeah, so um, if you're looking at this, you might just like improvement to education, revenue, yeah. cost, right? And How so do you then, break down the improvement to education piece? Just that, like, what is what the heck does that piece look like broken down? Well, it, it can be many things um, in different stuff. And so if, if you're, like, talking about, I don't know, year 12, you can think about, I don't know, improvement in study scores. Or if you're talking about mm -hmm. certain components, so if we're in the US, we will hopefully be able to say, like, if you did 100% of these questions, we think that you could get this much of an improvement on the state test at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And this means that there's also, like, a finite amount of time. So let's just say you've got 100 units of time and our product is 20 units of time or 10 units of time probably in the case of the US, what 10 units do you take off and replace it with? with? You don't just have magic up new 10 units. And is the return on time better from replacing those 10 units with our 10 units? Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it depends on the, the individual um, thing you're doing. But I believe there is some ability to do this. And being able to talk about this enables you to have a way to join together different ideas. Without that, yeah it's very difficult to think about how you should be trading the balance and the trade-off between the ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if someone's saying, I want to invest 10,000 more hours into developing this particular unit of learning, you'd yeah. have to look at like, yeah, what the impact would be, how much that's going to cost. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's interesting. Well, I mean, like this is another one, like, you know, we know that this has to be done on this dead time. Well, what can we get done in that time? We've got this much resourcing. So don't mm. come up with a product that's great, but it will take twice as long as, as you've got. So yeah. what's the best you can do with the time you have? <laughs> like, okay, yeah. like, you know, I want to spend more. Like, cool, we don't have more money. So either you find the money or we're going to have to make some compromises. The compromise, I think, is often a dirty word, but I think it's actually one of the most beautiful things. And so like the better word of compromise, I think, is trade-off. Almost all things involve a trade-off. And done well, we are finding the best balance. And so it's not like, oh, well, I had to compromise in this area or this. It's like, I don't think you will ever have unlimited money, unlimited time, you know, best people on earth and this. So you're just going to have to make the best with the ingredients you have in the time that you have. And that doesn't, to me, make me sad. It actually makes me happy. It's, it's like this, this is an interesting challenge. Yeah. Yeah, creative constraint. That makes sense. Okay. Cool. Constraints to creativity, as they say, which is another, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... You just solve for like necessity is the mother of all invention. Um, so what do we need to do and how are we going to get it done? Yeah. All right. I know I keep dragging this back to mini businesses, but how would you, if you were giving a baby business an instruction, how would you tell them to start scaffolding out this problem space? I mean, I guess that's going to be the foundation of the next blog article, but yeah. <laughs> how would you instruct them? No, well, I mean, to, to me, the first thing is like, what is the bigger picture and what are you doing? Um, so how are you helping improve the world and look, look at it from that? Cause I think drawing that and then 
what portion of people are you helping? So is it 0.1%, 1%, 10%, 100%? Then what are your acquisition channels? Um, and do they work for the, the target market that you're after? Um, and then after you've got this, you know, what does the sort of revenue look like side and then what does the cost side look like? And how can you get that business to make sense? Um, and so if you want a very, very big business, it needs to be a hundred percent business. Like, you know, everyone buys something, Amazon, everyone searches Google, you know, everyone does transport, you know, Tesla, everyone has friends, you know, Facebook or whatever, but most businesses don't address hundred percent of people. Um, so, and that's fine. And that's, that doesn't make it a worse business. I mean, in terms of your ceiling of valuation, it will probably be lower. That doesn't necessarily mean it is less impactful to humanity. Um, and so, um, to me, um, trying to understand, you, you know, the top down, uh, is really crucially important, but then you need to marry it with the bottom up. And so to me, problem solving is that process of zooming in and zooming out or top to bottom or a macro to micro, micro to macro, then, okay, what does this individual person do and how does it work and what makes them happy, you know, sort of thing. So you're kind of like marrying or all the other ones like start to finish, finish to start. So to me, that's what I would normally try to do is, okay, explain the macro problem you're helping with top down and, and all the market metrics. And now let's go and find an individual and let's map out the major persona types and tell me what do they do and why is it and why is this valuable to them and then you kind of like zooming in zooming out and then you've got to get the business metrics to work um so yeah that's yeah. rough best that's just literally what it came to my mind when you asked like, no, it's like no, no, no. It's me wing in on the spot yeah <laughs> no i like it it makes a lot of sense and when you're talking to the individual like are you mapping that out on a spreadsheet or are you having those kind of conversations off the cusp from intu intuition uh it, it depends like uh, normally i'm having a spreadsheet open even like if we're in a school i'll have my laptop because this is not deemed rude uh, i'm writing notes i'm not like surfing the web um, and I'm putting what hopefully are, you know, constructed the notes. And then after that, you, you can sort of synthesize. And so a word document is just an individual cell, right? You, but you can't have structure. You can't go sideways. You can't, you can't easily sum things up and create models. Um, so I would suggest, but for most people, it's outside the Overton window to write a blog in a spreadsheet. Like they just, they're like, what is this gibberish? Right. Um, uh, but inside of Ed Rollo, um, I, you know, effectively I'm always writing in a spreadsheet and in a meeting, you must always have a spreadsheet open. And you, it's like presented on the board or on the you know the screen, and you can see and you're you're putting bits together and building a picture. Really, really, that's very cool. Would would you ever record that and publish it? Um, sometimes we record meetings internally, um, but they've never been published externally, um, and um, I don't believe there's any plan to do so. And the main reason we record them internally is because somebody wasn't able to be there or something. And so this is them able to sort of see what, the, you know, what happened for some of these things. That's uh, interesting though. Yeah. Do but people ever contend where the information has been put on the spreadsheet? Sorry? Do people ever contend where or which cell information has been put on in the spreadsheet? As in, do, so you're building a model. And so, so how the model looks, so models yeah. are normally a minimum of two dimensions. Um, so it's like, well, what fit, what variables should be in there and how are we trying to discuss which things you go in this? So yes, definitely. So it's a building, so normally it's like, you know, what is the problem space, you know, coverage framework and then what is the solution sets? Um, and you're going through. So you, you can almost always describe thought in a model. And so this is just effectively a regression if you've done econometrics to explain something, but it's a regression. So there's a priori and a posteriori. So a priori is predicting ahead of time. This is what Einstein did, he had thought experiments. So he was like, okay, well, I think that gravity will bend light and that if you have an eclipse, you will see this and then you have to go and wait to measure it, right? And then it's a posteriori, which is you've got a whole lot of data, someone's collected and you're trying to make a model fit it. 
So you made a model for the future and then they collect data to, whether, to see whether the hypothesis is right or wrong. A priori, a posteriori, we have a whole lot of data, try to make a model to explain the data after the fact. And so what we're doing is a combination of both. We've had the year finish, now let's gather all the data and let's try to synthesize it. Now, that's a posteriori. Now, we want to do something for this year that's better than last year. And so what is it? And our predictions are going to be this much revenue, this much cost, this much, you know, blah, blah. Okay, now let's see how this works. And so your regression is an abbreviation of reality, but it allows you to see reality in a much higher resolution than just, I've got this idea. So one of these look at is like most people, they say people have four to seven slots of working memory. But the bigger the piece, the smaller the number of slots. So if it's one number, that's why phone numbers are seven digits long. But if your piece is an entire concept that is going to think about how they do change in understanding mathematics, like you're, you're building for low familiarity, then normally you can only fit four concepts in, or four pieces. And if you had a fifth piece, one pops out. You had a sixth piece, one pops out. So your synthesis of these four pieces is different to the first four pieces. And so you can't normally um, consider more than four things at once in your mind. But if you are able to write them out, into a page or a spreadsheet, you can see them. So you can start to wrestle them so you don't forget them. And so it is real-time piece building. It's not just like person A speak and then person B speak. And like, you've all said some really interesting stuff. But can anyone remember what person three people ago said? It's like, no, you know? And how does what that person said relate to what this person said? It's like, okay, well, if we're writing this out into a spreadsheet in a model and systematically writing this thing down, we will maybe have the ability to start to see the integrated picture that we've got, and then we can have version one or option one, option two, option three, and then we can try to tabulate the trade-offs in each of them and see which one gives a better overall outcome. Mm -hmm. And that enables, I hope, a much better chance at a positive sum discussion than does random talking. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you feel that most people would have the capacity to be trained to facilitate that kind of conversation, or do you think it's quite a unique skill? I believe that so, you know, just like whatever, 90% of people can learn to read. Um, and it's just, you know, yes. So 90% of people, like if you can learn to read, then you can learn to do this. Yeah, so that is, a, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, I don't, do you know other people that are doing that? That's a pretty cool tool if you could train people to do it. So this is something that I've sort of been inventing and going along the way, but there's been much inspiration in other places. So as an example, like quant funds are trying to make a model to abbreviate the share market and then use that model to build signals to then trade and make money. So, so to me, and then econometrics, like, you know, this is like we were making a model to forecast the you know economy or whatever else it is, right? And so to me, I don't think these are ideas and perhaps the way that we do it specifically at Adrolo is, is somewhat unique, but most of the ideas that are part of this, I think exist in other places. Was this something that I lifted from somewhere and just planted Hollis Bolas or I read it in a book? No. It's an evolution and joining together many ideas from different places and hopefully an ability to understand, um, you know, the world better. Um, so I, this approach, I believe, can be applied to basically anything. Every single thing I would try to apply it to, I think you can apply it to. But that's because you're doing some sort of system, like bad system worse than no system, good system better than no system. So it can cause you to get confused or whatever. So it, it is possibly a way to make things better not a guarantee but i would not personally want to make decisions without thinking this way yeah it's funny because it would be such a useful tool maybe in the space of even relationships or kind totally. of like domestic squads <laughs> 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 um i have 
normally, so as an example, like if I'm in a romantic relationship and I've got to run in a couple of minutes, um, because I'm going to get back to Melbourne and other hobbies, I'll have um, a separate journaling doc for that person. Um, and I'll just write comments and thoughts in it. Um, and it helps me understand my headspace. And some of it's about how I'm thinking about things. Some of it's some of the things that I think they're thinking. Um, and some of them I've had for family. So just like I talked about with James, I, I was worried that our friendship was on trajectory to being no friendship and strangers. And I didn't want that. So I'm like, how do we change this? And I was like, well, how do I level up the family relationships? And I was like, okay, well, how do you discuss in a more positive some way? And what I realized or came to believe before is that we were just a bunch of people interrupting each other. Just, and there's a, no one ever got to finish a single thought. And it was just constantly interrupted. And then someone interrupts someone else. And then someone interrupts somebody else. And I didn't even know that. I just called this normal because I didn't realize that you were effectively living in chaos. right? And so then I'm like, okay, well, maybe we can try to have some more structure and to not have people just interrupt each other the whole time. And then also, how do we think about discussing different topics? And what does it look like? And how do you make space for mum? So I'll be like, hey, mum, what do you think? Like, this is like, that'll be like my thing. I'll be like, let my sister will finish. I'll be like, okay, and mum, what do you think about that? And so you're kind of like, because you're not the running the meeting, this is not work, but you can have ways to systematically try to incorporate and make space for different people rather than like, I've got something to say and I want to say it. I'll stuff it, interrupt, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, which is what I thought until five years ago. And now I'm trying to have things be as enjoyable as possible for the overall group. And part of my role is to facilitate that without necessarily being the conductor of the meeting or, you know, it's not a meeting. It's just how we're having dinner. Yeah. But I want to hear. I love that. And I, yeah. And yeah. I know that if I don't necessarily proactively make space that she may not get the space for it. And I think that would be for my detriment and her detriment and the family's detriment in general. Yeah. That is really, really cool. I love that. Cool. That's yeah. That's another useful framework. Okay. All right. I know you need to go, so I'll I'll stop asking. <laughs> I want to. I, I haven't I haven't done cardio, and the hell will freeze over before I don't do cardio. You know, this is like I do not miss exercise. <laughs> I do not miss blogging. You know, I do not do. You know, so to me, um, and I also have to drive back to Melbourne. I also have to eat dinner, and I also have to get to bed on a reasonable time because I'm also getting <laughs> up at 10 tomorrow, and then I've also got a hell of a lot of stuff to do. Uh, and so, um, I don't know how to fit all those things in um, properly, but. Oh. Yeah. If you ever want to consciously complain and go uh, or something, let me know. Yeah, whatever. Okay, I would like a know. teleportation device because I'm an hour and a half out of Melbourne and <laughs> I don't particularly feel like having to drive there because this is going to be difficult. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like if you want, maybe I can try to give you a call on the way back and you can ask me some questions that are different. But I've got to jump now because otherwise it's cardio is not going to be a chance. <laughs> go, go, go. Will, Please will, go. Like, it's like unacceptable. Um, like, <laughs> I, I, I do not miss doing exercise, like rain, hail or shine. This is uh, unconscionable. <laughs> um, thank you love to speak to you and I'll speak to you soon thanks Bye. <laughs> Bye.